Ready? Aim. Fire! Versailles, the immortal. Episode 3, 1824-1923. Can you hear me? It's Pierre coming to you live from the Palace of Versailles. Pierre Duchamp, your favorite tour ghost, uh, I mean guide. I'm back in the gallery of the history of the palace, in this room devoted to Louis-Philippe I. I'd love it if you'd join me. If you want to. In body or in mind. Are you there? Great. Look at these flamboyant paintings. The king on his horse with his sons in front of the gates, and again visiting the palace's brand new galleries. Versailles is back with a bang. Surprising, isn't it? When we parted last time in 1823, I was wondering what would become of our great sleeping giant. And I had good reason to worry. When a house is left uninhabited, it goes into decline. When a building has lost its purpose, it deteriorates. And don't forget, we're talking 63,000 square meters of interior space and 800 hectares of gardens and forest here. Anyway, even though Versailles was no longer a royal residence, it was a king who brought change. Hey, watch out! What's going on? What is this mess? All these rooms on the first floor will have to be demolished, and over there, we'll lower the floor. For the gallery of battles, I suggest we seal up the windows and install a vast modern glass roof that will provide the natural light that is best for admiring the paintings. If your majesty authorizes it, of course. In the prince's apartments, we'll remove the fireplaces, the wainscoting, and the trumeau mirrors. Then we'll tackle the upper floors, where we'll be looking at a different kind of color. Did you recognize the voice of Frédéric Neveu, whose portrait we can see in this gallery? No? That's okay. But I promise you it was indeed him we followed on one of his visits to the major works to convert Versailles into a museum dedicated to all the glories of France, commissioned by the new king, Louis-Philippe, in 1833. Yes, the same chap we saw surrounded by his five sons in Horace Vernet's painting. During the four years it took to complete the work on the museum, the king visited nearly 400 times to supervise the construction. Note, however, that he never slept in the palace, for a king who had agreed with the principles of the French Revolution and bet on national reconciliation, that would have been a bit too... ancien régime. For me, these works were a godsend. Life was finally returning to the palace, and with the museum, so was the promise of crowds to brighten my days. Masons, painters, parquet planners. The rooms and corridors rang with accents from all over France once again. Of course, I did feel a twinge of sorrow over the demolition of the court apartments, the Rococo-style lounges and beautiful bathrooms. More evidence to contradict the malicious rumors that no one bathed at Versailles. Perhaps the new king, who was of the House of Orléans, took some pleasure in erasing the memory of his Bourbon cousins. By preserving the Hall of Mirrors and the State Apartments, he at least retained the memory of Louis XIV. 
In any case, by June 10, 1837, everything was ready for the grand opening. I was dressed in my finest attire, even though no one could see me, to witness this event that was going to turn the palace into a museum. My respects, dear colleague. And the same to you, good sir. I didn't think I'd see you here. Isn't this event a bit too royalist for your paper? Royalist? Not at all. Look, this painting pays homage to the great battles of 1794. Yes, indeed, but there's nothing on the storming of the Bastille or the Royal Tennis Court Oath, which took place pretty much right here. Mm. I particularly appreciate the prominence given to our deceased emperor. <laughs> all the glories of France... That's a contentious subject, if there ever was one. Indeed. You'll have noticed that all the glories of the present day appear to be here. <laughs> Monsieur de Musset, Monsieur de Balzac, even Alexandre Dumas and Victor Hugo have turned up. You're right. They don't hold a grudge, these two. Haven't been stripped of their Légion d'honneur. Do you want an exclusive? Hugo even came to congratulate the king for having made a national monument out of a monarchical one. Oh. <laughs> and for having put an immense idea in the past, placing 1789 face-to-face -face with 1688, Napoleon in Louis XIV's palace. <laughs> oh, that's absolutely right. But the new paintings are hideously ugly. They are. I wonder who was commissioned to do them, and what Eugène de la Croix, who I've just seen, thinks of them. Have you seen the crusade room on the ground floor? Oh, no. oh, not yet. I would advise you to cover your eyes. I will never understand why this architectural masterpiece was allowed to be destroyed to make way for these abominations. Abominations are right. And that's not the end of it. Did you hear that the museum is to be extended to include the whole palace in the coming years? Right up to the attics under the roofs. <laughs> You're such a wet blanket. I actually think it's great. And I bet Louis-Philippe will go down in history as the man who saved Versailles. Saved? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I don't know if the king of the French saved Versailles, but Versailles certainly didn't save him. After his abdication in 1848, France would never have another king. Well, until the new order. But the palace, having become a museum, proved it no longer needed a sovereign in situ to survive. I have to admit that knowing this put my mind at ease. At 250 years old, I was too old to be worrying about every change of regime. And I've seen a few. No, it was time to enjoy the museum visitors, the fountain shows in the gardens every Sunday, and the lavish receptions that continued to be held. Here, for example, is a sonic memory of the day when Napoleon III and the Empress Eugenie welcomed Queen Victoria to Versailles. Yes, you heard that right. Victoria herself. Accompanied by Albert, of course. Because Victoria without Albert is like... Uh... Anyway, I digress. It's the 25th of August, 1855, and a memorable celebration is underway. In the Royal Opera House, tables are set up for a banquet. Rather like the one for the wedding of Louis and Marie Antoinette in 1770, remember? On the day the Opera House was inaugurated, in the gardens, the pyrotechnicians are busy and the Hall of Mirrors is teeming with decorators filling every corner with flowers and plants. 
It seems they're even going to light up the hall with gas. No big deal. Even the train comes as far as Versailles these days. Anyway, listen up. The ball is now in full swing. What are we, Maxime? I'm lost. I have no idea. I don't see any of the orchestra conductors. Not Isaac Strauss, nor Alfred Dufresne. What a stupid idea to spread the musicians out behind these groves. I don't know how the people will manage to dance. Are you playing? Uh, no. I've been pretending to for the last 20 minutes. But look at Queen Victoria's dress. <gasps> I prefer the Empress of Denise. Look at the wigs. And the diamonds. <gasps> You'd think we were back in Louis XIV's day. Wow. I didn't realize you were that old. I can imagine, you big idiots. Hey! But look at the splendor, all the same. After the first ball, there's a banquet for 400 people, uh -huh. followed by a concert, uh -huh. fireworks, and then a second ball. Yeah, the second ball. Don't I know it. My day doesn't finish until 3 in the morning. This will be a nice little earner, by the way. But you're right about the rest. The emperor wants to patch things up with the English, and what better way to do that than to impress the queen by recreating the Versailles of the 17th century. I mean, the Grand Siècle, right? He even invited everyone to watch the fireworks, just like the Sun King did. You're not so stupid for a violet player. I know, I'm not that stupid. Because my mother put a bow in my hand when I was just three years old, but I always dreamed of being a diplomat. Well, make the most of this event, as we're kind of like ambassadors for France this evening. Wee, wee, wee. But to do that, we'd have to be able to see the conductor, you know. I know. They're not wrong, those musicians. Even though Napoleon III never planned to change Versailles' new function, he revived certain customs of the great king, such as the lavish invitations. As for the empress... She adored the Trianon and had a passionate interest in Marie-Antoinette. She even organized an homage to Louis XVI's wife at the Petit Trianon to mark the 1867 World Fair, making the most of the opportunity to install the original furniture there. It's funny how the past is always inveigling its way into the present, particularly between the walls of this estate. Hmm. Check this painting out. It depicts a scene I remember very well. A dark time for this house. The Hall of Mirrors converted into an ambulance, or field hospital as we'd call it today, for Prussian soldiers. The evenly spaced camp beds under Lebrun's ceilings, the stretchers for carrying the wounded. It's not the fact that they were treating the wounded here that bothered me, no. What troubled me was that our palace became the Prussians' base during the Siege of Paris, from September 1870. I had often heard German spoken within these walls by several queens in particular, but this time it was different. It was, how can I put it, like a kind of revenge for the Prussians. On January 18, 1871, I was feeling uneasy, floating through the Hall of Mirrors just as Wilhelm was proclaimed Emperor of Germany. The great men of the new empire had taken their seats on a platform, exactly opposite to where Louis XIV had been. It was all about the symbols. Less than a century after the revolution, 
Versailles was once more, for a time, the seat of political power, even after the Germans had left. Now, follow me. We're heading to the Royal Opera House. Looking at this inscription outside the building, Sina, or Senate. Yes, the Opera House, no stranger to transformations, hosted the French Senate and even the Assembly to begin with. In the spring of 1871, after the wounded German soldiers, French politicians were the next to settle here. Paris had rebelled, but yes, the Commune. Does that ring a bell? Well, in 1871, Paris was rocked by violent uprisings. And Adolphe Thiers, the head of the government, chose to install the government and parliament in Versailles. A museum, you might wonder, to accommodate deputies? Yes. And it was back to the camp beds in the Hall of Mirrors. This time, they were for deputies returning hastily from Bordeaux. And if you'll permit me a little indiscretion, a French deputy, after a few nights in this luxurious dormitory, he snores. The ministers, on the other hand, fared better. Have you heard of Augustin Pouillet-Cartier? Well, I hadn't either. But as Minister for Finance, he had the honor of occupying the King's private apartment and sleeping in Louis XIV's bedroom. So it was that the Castle of Kings became the palace of the Third Republic until 1879. As there were now two parliamentary chambers, a huge amphitheater had to be built in the South Wing. The deputies moved in there, while the senators remained at the Royal Opera House, which had been transformed into the Senate, you remember? This huge amphitheater still exists today. It's now the Congress Chamber, and is even bigger than the National Assembly in Paris, which is saying something. During those years, I completed my political education by listening to debates. There were some great orators. Oh, the speeches of Gambetta and Sadi Carnot. Order! Order! Mr. Deputy, you have the floor. And in the corridors, there was plenty of intrigue. The parliamentarians were worse than the courtiers of old. I really have heard it all. The seat of power eventually returned to Paris, but some customs lived on. Presidents of the Republic continued to be elected in Versailles up to 1954. And even today, the president will gather parliament in Congress when the need arises. This doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's amusing to see traces of the Ancien Régime in the pomp of the Republican ceremonies. Before bringing the political memories to a close, I'd like to take you to the Orangerie. I haven't mentioned it to you yet, but it's one of my favorite places in the palace and one of the first structures to be built by Levaux when Louis XIV was just 25 years old. It was later extended by Jules Ardouin Mansart. Do you see those large openings to the south? Can you smell the Portuguese orange trees? Actually, one of my worst memories stems from this enchanting setting. You remember earlier I mentioned the commune? Well, in the spring of 1871, certain elements of Paris federated 
the government relocated to Versailles and President Thiers' army was tasked with suppressing the Parisian insurgents. It was here in the Orangerie where some of the 35,000 communards taken prisoner were held. Some were even shot in the park. Less than a hundred years after the revolution, the sad scenario of Versailles versus Paris and the elite versus the people was being replayed. Sometimes, I wonder about the deep traces these events have left on the hearts of the French people. Ready, aim, fire! My dear listeners, we are now back in the gallery of the history of the palace. Because it is the palace that is the true hero of our story. Look at this portrait of this man studying hard at his magnificent desk. It's Pierre de Nolac, who was as passionate about Versailles as I am. He arrived here in 1887, but it wasn't until 1892 that he was appointed curator and his work truly began. Work that, in terms of the palace, can be summed up in one word, Renaissance. In short, this great scholar achieved something amazing in just 30 years. He broke away from Louis-Philippe's vision of a palace museum and refined it, faithfully recreating the various eras of life at the palace to make the visitor experience even more amazing. And there were visitors in the early 20th century, I can tell you. People like you and me, well, mostly like you, as I haven't met any other ghost gamekeepers, but also princes and princesses, the Empress Eugenie, and even Tsar Nicholas II and his family. Versailles was back in fashion, and I totally didn't mind. What are those wandering through the king's apartments and the French-style gardens looking for? I don't know, but some of them certainly seem to have quite strange encounters. Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Lamont. I should point out that those aren't your real names, which you prefer not to reveal. Uh, thank you very much for answering my questions for the readers of the Modern Journal of Psychic Research. Thank you. Merci à vous. Your book, An Aventure, which has not yet been translated into French, caused a sensation in England, your home country, and in the United States. In it, you write about the let's call it paranormal experience, you had during your tour of the Petit Trianon at Versailles in the summer of 1901. That's right. Uh, we wish to make it clear that we conducted a very serious research project to understand this experience and that this is not fictional fantasy. Yes, it's all true, and it was peer-reviewed by the leading experts. D'accord. So, on uh, the 10th of August 1901, which was a hot and stuffy day at Versailles, you got lost in the gardens at the Trianon. Yes. We suddenly felt oppressed and ill at ease, at which point we met two men dressed in green and wearing tricorn hats who showed us a pathway, and then a young girl and a woman wearing old-fashioned clothes, and then further on, a frightening figure wearing a cape. It was a man with a desperate air and scarred face who was sitting close to a Chinese pavilion. Then you saw a young woman in a white cap who was sitting down drawing. Exactly. She also had a green scarf, which is important. Then, at the door of the house, a young manservant took us to the Petit Trianon, 
where a wedding appeared to be taking place. You say in your book that you recognized the woman who was drawing as none other than Marie Antoinette. Did you speak to her? Of course not. All of this was very vague, like in a dream. And it was only after years of detailed research that we recognized the unfortunate queen when we came across a portrait of her wearing the exact same outfit. A portrait we'd never seen before. Extraordinaire. I should mention that you are both lecturers in a prestigious institution and in no way involved in the occult. Absolutely not. We didn't even speak to each other about this experience until a few days later, and we decided to write down what we remembered separately. And our accounts were absolutely identical. Twelve years later. How do you explain that? We believe we had access to Marie Antoinette's memories, snippets of them she'd had left in the air. And that were transmitted to us via electrical waves that were particularly strong on that stormy day. Interesting, eh? I leave it up to you to form your own opinion of the story told by these two English women. But what I can tell you is that some of their visions match my own memories exactly. And right now, you can hear me fine thanks to the wonders of electricity. And that's it. A century has passed, and Versailles is still there. Palace, park, and museum, where you can relive the story of the last kings of France. Obviously, the Great War intervened here like elsewhere, and the estate had its share of the dead in the trenches, too. To end this episode, I'd like to show you one last object. It was on this large, Louis XV-style desk that the peace treaty between France, the United Kingdom, and the United States on one side, and Germany on the other, was signed on June 28, 1919. In the Hall of Mirrors, the same place in which the German Empire was declared 48 years earlier, the Treaty of Versailles sealed Europe's fate. When Pierre de Nolac retired in 1920, it must have been with a feeling of mission accomplished. As for me, in 1923, I sensed an ill wind blowing across our continent. Would Versailles survive the events that were brewing and the consequences of its namesake treaty? To be continued. Versailles Immortal, a fictional tale by the Palace of Versailles, written by Emmanuel Suarez and produced by Moustique Studio. Thanks to the scientific advice of Mathieu Davina, scientific director of the Palace of Versailles Research Center, featuring the voices of Anaïs Parello, Bruce Sherfield, Véronique Belloc, David Coburn, Elise Anderson Scotto, Yann Bean, and Tercelin Kirtley in the role of Pierre Duchamp. Discover 400 years of history at the Gallery of the History of the Palace of Versailles, refurbished in 2023, thanks to the support of Région Île-de-France for the digital content. The Palace of Versailles podcast are available on all audio platforms, in the Palace app, and on en.chateauversailles.fr.